When he was a child, his grandfather and his uncle made a bet that he wouldn't survive to see 14 years old. Even he figured that his chances of making it to 20 years old were slim. But along the way, he would come to realize that he held a great power. Even before he was much taller than his daddy's shin, he found that he had the ability to make his family laugh. And that awoke a great force within him. Welcome to House of Words, a podcast about writers, comedians, and legacies. I am your host, Jason Nemore Hardin, and on this episode, we explore a few foundational moments throughout the incredible life of legendary comedian Richard Pryor. Quote, all humor is rooted in pain. End quote. The first time he made his family laugh happened outside the house at 313 North Washington in Peoria, Illinois, where he was born on December 1st, 1940. The place where he grew up among an assortment of relatives, neighbors, whores, and winos. The very same people who would go on to inspire a lifetime of comedic material. He was a skinny little kid with big eyes and a wide, bright smile that begged for more attention than anyone had time to give. Dressed in a cowboy outfit, the only range rustler in all of Peoria, as he would later write, he sat on a railing of bricks and found that when he fell off on purpose, everyone laughed, including his grandmother, who it seemed to him had made it her job to scare the living shit out of people. Now, after a few more minutes of falling and receiving the desired reaction, a little dog wandered by and took a dump in the yard. Now, seeing this, young Richard got up and ran to his grandmother, but managed to slip in the dog poop on the way. It made the whole family burst out in laughter. Now, thinking that he was really onto something, he did it a second time causing even more of an outburst of laughter. This, as he would recall, would be his very first joke. Fast forward, 1963, 22 years old, wearing a ragamuffin suit, a pencil-thin tie, and patent leather shoes, looking sharp. Now, according to him, he might have only had $10 in his pocket, but he looked like he had 50 Upon arriving at what was most likely Grand Central Terminal, he paid 50 cents to shower, slapped on some canoe cologne, and walked outside into Manhattan. Skyscrapers, taxis, and crowds raced across and along the streets and sidewalks. It was a lot to take in for someone with no place to go. Alarms went off in his head, and he wondered what he'd gotten himself into. The only place he knew in Manhattan was the Apollo Theater in Harlem, so he caught the bus uptown, got off at 125th Street, and wandered around. Though not knowing anyone in Harlem at this point, there was one thing that made him feel just a little bit better, and that was seeing all those black people. And when he arrived at the Apollo, he met the guy who was in charge of booking acts. I'd like to work here, Richard told him. I'm a comedian. <laughs> yeah, right. The man answered, disbelievingly, why don't you try down at the village? Being his first time in New York, Richard couldn't wrap his head around what the man was referring to. Wasn't it New York City? One of the biggest cities in the world? 
Why was he talking about a village? The man told him to head downtown. Now Richard caught a bus and sat down next to a guy who was forced to listen to him ramble about how he'd come to town to be a comedian and didn't know anyone. He told him that he planned to stay at the YMCA nearest the clubs and asked if he knew where that was. The man insisted that Richard stay with him at his rooming house on 36th Street instead. Although he was hesitant and a little scared at first, the stranger turned out to be nice and helpful. He introduced him to the landlady, got him a room, and then told him which people he ought to be wary of. In 1963, the village was alive full of comedians and artists looking for work. He met talented young comics, got connections, and before long he was opening for Superman Victor Brady and his Trinidadian Steel Band. And once he decided that he was going to be in New York for a while, he took a small apartment on 14th Street. It was a strange place. The door was a peculiarity for the simple fact that it could be locked, but practically any key could also open it. On one night, a thief broke in just after Richard had gone to bed. He heard the door open and then somebody walked in. Now, this individual began rummaging through his things. Now, when he felt the burn of Richard's gaze like a flashlight beam, the thief turned around. Um, I think you've got the wrong room, Richard said calmly. Now, the intruder played it equally as cool and replied, I guess you're right, and then left. But that wouldn't be the only strange character he'd meet. Oh, no, not in New York City. Once when he was in a restaurant with a group of people. Now, in this group of people, there was a beautiful lady flirting with him. And just so happens, she was white, and her advances really upset the guy sitting next to Richard. As soon as Pryor picked up on this, he decided to add some grease to the fire suggesting that the lady change seats so that she could sit right next to him. A few minutes later, they left for a nearby hotel. Now, as they sat on the bed in the hotel room, Richard put his arm around the lady and started rubbing her sumptuous body. They got all worked up to that magic point, and just as he was about to ask her to give him head, his hand touched her arm. Only it was like no other arm that he'd ever felt. It was, in fact, made of wood. He decided to give it a check with his fingernail. Yep, hard as a tree. He immediately felt his penis wave adios and retreat into his stomach, something that obviously did not go unnoticed. Does that bother you? The young lady asked. No, Pryor squeaked. But it scares the hell out of my dick. <laughs> The following year, on August 31, 1964, Richard Pryor made his TV debut on Rudy Valley's summer variety show on Broadway Tonight. It was actually Rudy Valley himself who, over his producer's objections, insisted on putting Richard on the show. He could barely believe his luck, his first opportunity at nationwide exposure. Back then, Cosby, Dick Gregory, and Nipsey Russell were among the few black comics who appeared on TV, and Pryor was admittedly happy to join them. Nervous and stiff, he stared into the camera and began his set with an introduction. 
I'm going to tell you folks a few things about myself because a lot of you probably don't know me, he said. I'm not a New Yorker. My home is Peoria, Illinois. I had a wild neighborhood, I got to tell you, because my mother's Puerto Rican, my father's a Negro, and we lived in a big Jewish tenement building in an Italian neighborhood. So every time I went outside, they'd yell, Get him! He's all of them! (laughs) After the show, his family called to congratulate him. His dad, in particular, was tickled. He said, We're proud of you, son. At least you aren't sticking nobody up. By the mid-1960s, his reputation as a comic had spread beyond the downtown nightclubs where he was becoming equally as well known for acting strange as he was for getting laughs. Thanks to appearances on television variety shows like Merv Griffin and the Craft Music Hall, he entered the mainstream. Now, his personal life remained less conventional, however. He caught women as if they were taxis and at one point met Tia Maria a prostitute. She took him back to her apartment and introduced him to her friend, the white lady, Cocaine. Come on, everybody's doing it, she said. Okay, I'll try some. Tia set out nice little piles the size of small pearls. It was quite a pretty scene, and he liked it from the very first snort. He started snorting little tiny pinches, telling himself that he wouldn't get hooked not on coke. He had friends who'd been snorting for 15 years and they were not hooked. It made him feel cool. It made him feel brave. Six months later, he was shoveling it up his nose by the spoonful. It was in September of 1968 when his live performance at the Troubadour led to his first comedy album, simply titled Richard Pryor. As a youth, He so admired Bob Newhart's first recording that he'd pilfered it from a little store in Peoria. Later on, he considered Bill Cosby's debut album as perfect, perfectly hilarious. And tops of all was Lenny Bruce's Lima, Ohio, as Richard held in his mind that no one had ever made an album as brilliantly funny. So one can only surmise that to have his own album was quite thrilling. Now, he undoubtedly aspired to create something similar to his version of a greatest hits list, but in the end, he considered his first endeavor into the world of comedy recordings as a good, though uneven, effort. It should be noted, however, that routines like his super nigger bit revealed the voice that was trying to, and would eventually, break through. His album's cover art, a near-naked prior shot by legendary photographer Henry Diltz, was a parody of the stereotypical photos of Native Africans in National Geographic. It basically let the buyer know that this was not your average comedy record. On top of the message he sent with that daring album art, he was also at a career crossroad in 1968. On a rise to the top of the game, he'd already become a regular on the Merv Griffin Show and the Ed Sullivan Show, and was signed to the same agency that handled the Beatles and the Supremes. Richard was confrontational, but it wasn't just his love of artistic freedom that pulled him toward what many looked at as defiance. No, no, no. There was much more to it. He wanted not only to change comedy, but how we look at ourselves and those around us, something I believe most of us can attest that he succeeded in doing. 
When Scott Saul's book, Becoming Richard Pryor, Saul suggests that when Richard was performing at the Troubadour, he invented a style that was as far out as Frank Zappa and as defiant as H. Rap Brown and was catalyzed by the fusion of the two movements. On the one hand, the freewheeling ethic of the counterculture shaded Richard's act with irony, making his more political moves seem provisional and subject to revision. On the other, the militancy of the black power movement sharpened his zaniness, giving it a point. His improvisations could cut you open with their poignancy or shock you with their bitterness. Later one day that same year, while watching television with his friend, Paul Mooney, he became inspired. He wondered why they never had a black hero on any of the shows. He'd always wanted to go to the movies and see a black hero and figured that maybe someday they'd have it on television. There would be some funky music and then, look, up in the sky, it's a crow, it's a bat. No, it's super nigger. As like so many ideas that hatched in living rooms beneath clouds of weed smoke, his idea sounded crazy, but brilliant. To him, at least. Instead of a television show, he concluded that he was going to make a movie. He was going to write, direct, produce, and star in it. Now, since Hollywood wasn't overflowing with opportunities for black actors, he and Mooney would create their own opportunity. It all sounded so simple that it seemed possible. We'll get our friends together and do it, Pryor said. Where are we getting the money? Mooney asked. Me, Pryor answered. I'll put it up. I'll produce. Who's going to direct? Me. Who's going to be in it? Everybody we know. Oh, shit. They began shooting the then-titled film Bon Appetit in March 1969. Penelope Spheris, a future successful director, was the camera operator because she had gone to film school, but that's as much legitimacy as the film had. Although missing due to circumstances that will soon be revealed, the picture allegedly opened with a black maid receiving oral sex at the breakfast table by the wealthy white man who owned the house where she worked. Then a gang of black panther types burst into the house and take him prisoner. Now, as the white man is led away, the maid fixed her dress and called out, Bon Appetit, baby. The rest of the movie, which was retitled The Trial and also goes under the name Uncle Tom's Fairy Tales, was a silly stab at a political statement. The Panthers held the white antagonist in a basement and put him on trial for all the racial crimes in U.S. history. Black exploitation hadn't yet made an impact and they felt like they were breaking new ground. But unfortunately for them, halfway through the editing process, they ran out of money. To keep the dream alive, Richard borrowed money from a shady character he knew. Eventually, he brought in a few more people like him. Then there was a falling out. The unfinished print was stolen and subsequently brought back to Pryor. But then it disappeared again. Now, one day, Paul Mooney saw the film advertised as a coming attraction at a downtown art house, and after some investigation, Pryor managed to reacquire the print, which still wasn't complete. Then, in a last-ditch effort, he reached out to none other than Bill Cosby and managed to persuade him to put up the money for the final edit. Penelope Spheris, the camera operator, also worked as the editor and completed the movie, though she would later say 
she didn't earn a dime for her work. And once the film was completed, Pryor and Cosby watched the final print. After the screening, Cosby said only one thing. Hey, this shit is weird. The movie was strange. Too strange. Even for Pryor. Despite the effort, he shelved the print and learned a lesson. To make a movie from start to finish, you need a good reason. And he had completely ran out of them during the creation of this one. <laughs> I would pay some good money to see that flick. A Penelope Spheris, however, has a different take on how things happened. According to her, Pryor's wife was wildly jealous about the amount of time he was spending on the movie as opposed to time with her. Now, in his state of mania and drug use, Richard began ripping the negatives apart to show her that she was more important than the movie. Spheris was shocked, but could do little else than watch the destruction of the film they had worked so hard on. According to the Richard Pryor biography, Furious Cool, Penelope Spheris spent days splicing the pieces of the film back together like a jigsaw puzzle. She reconstructed the 40-some minutes of film by arduously piecing together the mangled pieces, some only a few frames long. The result was so crumpled and patched together that the film danced all around as it ran through the projector gate. On the WTF podcast, Spheris explained that after he ripped the film to shreds, she recut it and he, Richard Pryor, then showed it to Bill Cosby. Regardless of the actual true events, whatever they may be, the movie was never shown again in its full form. Scenes from it, however, were screened at a tribute to Pryor at the 2005 Directors Guild of America. Now, his wife, Jennifer Lee Pryor, sued Penelope and Richard's daughter, Rain Pryor, for allegedly stealing the film from Pryor's house. The 1960s had begun with a bang for Richard Pryor. His career skyrocketed once he hit New York City. In the years to come, there would be so much more in store for him, both good and bad. But that's something to explore on a later episode. So let's end this episode with a quote from the late, great, controversial, legendary comedian himself. I believe the ability to think is blessed. If you can think about a situation, you can deal with it. The big struggle is to keep your head clear enough to think. End quote. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and will spread the word about the podcast. Once again, I have been your host, Jason Nemoa Harden. We here at House of Words ask that you please consider helping to make this show easier to produce and more frequent by contributing on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash houseofwords or paypal.me slash houseofwordspodcast. Alternatively, you can subscribe and encourage others to subscribe to our YouTube page, House of Words Podcast. Every little bit helps more than you might think. Until next time, laugh, 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 and keep turning those pages. House of Words is written and produced by Crystal M. Sanchez. Narrated and written by me, Jason and Moore Harden. 
music by Creature9 and Wood. All rights and ownership belong to Christo M. Sanchez and Jason Limor Harden.